what do I want in relationships? What kind of person do I want to be in my relationships? You're going to be surprised and you're going to be caught off guard. Not always in a bad way, but also not always in a good way. Try to aim for a life that's guided by those values and not guided by fears or insecurities. This is the It's Complicated podcast. I'm Reese Cox, and you know what? I love my job. I love researching new topics every month. I love talking to people who are smarter than me about psychology. And I even love sitting up late at night editing these episodes just so that I can deliver them to you, my wonderful listeners. Thank you. But now I gotta come clean about something. It's Complicated is not my only podcast. That's right. You know the independent station on the outskirts of town? Yeah, I produce there too. And I must confess, I love both these podcasts equally. That might come as a surprise to you, but I also have to admit that while I'm not showing equal love and attention to both podcasts, I also do a little freelance writing on the side. I know, messy, right? Are you jealous, disappointed, upset? Probably not. Because we all know and accept what it means to be a freelancer. There's no contract which prevents me from working elsewhere, and I fend for myself without a single employer who gets to lay claim to all of my time. No big deal. We've all heard of it. But let's rewind for a moment and pretend that this confession was to a significant other, and that the affairs that I admitted to were not of the journalistic variety. Ouch. For many of us out there, this or any scenario involving bringing in more parties to a relationship is downright out of the question. Thankfully for the hypothetical couple on the brink here, there are innumerable relationship therapists and counselors who can help save or consciously uncouple a monogamous relationship. But there are comparatively far fewer who are willing and qualified to detangle a nuanced, consensually non-monogamous relationship. Consensual non-monogamy is an umbrella term that describes open relationships, polyamory, and relationship anarchy, as well as a variety of smaller subcategories of CNM relationship types. And in the spirit of polyamory, I'll be bringing to you not one, but two interviews in one episode with mental health practitioners who specialize in consensually non-monogamous relationships. But before I introduce them, I'd like to remind you that, despite the rumors, It's Complicated is more than just a podcast. We are also, and first and foremost, a web directory dedicated to making it extremely simple to find the right therapist. No matter what kind of therapy you're looking for, It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect with a practitioner. Visit us online at complicated.life. And if you like the content you get here on the podcast, you can find more interesting and insightful information at our blog. That is blog.complicated.life. Now, back to the topic at hand. Dedeker Winston is my first guest on the show today. Dedeker is a relationship coach with a lifetime of experience in the polyamorous world. She is best known for her book, The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory, which you can find just about anywhere where books are sold. There's also an audiobook version available from Audible. On top of that, she's the co-host at the Multi-Amory Podcast, which is extremely informative and I think has around 260 episodes And I highly recommend you check out their archive. There's some really, really valuable information in there. Later on in the episode, I'm going to share a bit of a conversation with psychotherapist Matthias Funke. Matthias has been a practicing psychotherapist for some time, 
During it, he was also practicing a polyamorous lifestyle. And he noticed that within Berlin and the polyamorous community, there was a need for a therapist who could account for the needs of polyamorous people. I'll let him continue the conversation for there, but I think everyone will be interested in this conversation, but particularly if you yourself are a therapist of some kind, I highly recommend that you stay tuned. And without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Dedeker, and we're going to start off our conversation on the question, where did it all begin for you? Yeah, I'll see if I can give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, You know, it's important to note uh, my personal background, which is that I was raised uh, extremely conservative evangelical Christian. Um, So that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. And so pretty much all of my messaging around relationships, around sex, around monogamy, around infidelity, were things that was taught to me either by the church or by, you know, media, like we all grow up with to a certain extent. Um, And so I feel like I was pretty much on track, you know, um, for all intents and purposes, kind of on track to live a very traditional life, honestly, you know, and be instilled with very, very traditional values around relationships and sex. you know, I mean, I was, you know, I went to an evangelical Christian school where I raised, or, you know, I, I signed those virginity pledges, you know, I signed two of those, actually. Um, and uh, when I got into high school was the first time that I kind of started feeling a little different, I guess, or feeling like a little bit odd, or like kind of like I didn't quite align with with these values that I was taught, particularly because like I got into my first relationship, you know, it's kind of playing around with the idea of adult relationships as a teenager and um, found very quickly that even though I felt happy in this relationship, I was really, um, I was developing a crush on someone else at the same time and was really attracted to someone else. And that's such a really common human experience, like maybe arguably a universal experience, but um for me, it just kind of went against everything that I was taught, you know, like all the Disney movies taught me that if you're really in love with someone that doesn't happen, you know, Mm -hmm. and the church definitely taught me that like, if you love someone that doesn't happen, it's not even possible for you to be attracted to someone else or interested in someone else. And so I really internalized it, unfortunately, at this pretty young age, like I internalized it to think that there must be something wrong with me you know, like I must not truly be in love with someone or I must not be capable of truly loving someone because I have this ability to like have crushes and be attracted to multiple people at once. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, most of my life, most of my formative years, most of my early 20s was practicing some form of kind of like serial monogamy, which is like what most people I think practice today, you know, this practice of having multiple monogamous relationships back to back. Um, And I just like, but every single monogamous relationship I was in, I had this, why can I not get this right? What the fuck is wrong with me? You know, and I would sink into depression and anxiety and just all these terrible things until for me, um, the turning point, the first of many turning points didn't really start until I was in my early twenties. Um, the cycle was kind of happening again where, you know, I was interested in multiple people, but I didn't want to leave the relationship that I was in. I felt very happy in it. I didn't want to cheat. Like I didn't want to break up, you know, I was really frustrated. And my best friend suggested to me, like, have you thought about an open relationship? And to be totally honest, I was actually kind of offended at the suggestion at the time, because 
I mean, at that time, like, I thought like open relationships, they're not for people who are committed to each other. You know, I don't want anything to do with that, but I still went home and Googled it. And that opened up this, that was how I came across this term polyamory. And for me, finding that term and then subsequently finding, you know, um, books and magazine articles and blog posts. And, and I mean, to be fair, like this was over 10 years ago. And so there was some polyamory and non-monogamy content online, but not nearly as much as there is today. Like it's mm. really, really um, exploded in the past decade, I would say. But um, it just like blew my mind, you know, that not only was there this word and this term that described something I'd felt capable of pretty much my entire adult life, but also the fact that people were doing this and it was like, relatively healthy and high functioning and people were happy and people were consenting to it and people were on board with it. It just like totally blew my mind. And, um, you know, long story short, that was kind of the beginning for me was about mm. 10 years ago. And I had a lot of false starts, a lot of really bad relationships, a lot of really bad tries at it. But each time I wouldn't come out of it kind of thinking like, ah, oh, fuck, that was a failed experiment time to go back to monogamy, which some people do. And that's fine. For me, mm -hmm. it was always like, okay, you know, that sucked. I made some mistakes. This other person made some mistakes, but like, how do I do it better next time? How do I actually do this in a healthy way? You know, cause it's still, even when I was in relationships that weren't that great, it still felt closer to me. Like what was right for me than traditional monogamy ever did. Um, so anyway, that was kind of the beginning of like my personal journey with it. Like professionally, those things didn't really merge for me until I would say about five or six years ago um, when a couple things happened at once. Um, like I did some TV appearances uh, that forced me to kind of come out to my family. I started writing a proposal for a book. Um, and then also it was around the same time that we started the podcast as well, kind of stumbled our way through starting the podcast. And those things kind of really converged to really um, set me on a path toward this becoming also professionally what I focus on and what I write about and, you know, the client base that I have from there. Mm -hmm. a, a number of questions come to mind from what you just said, but one specifically, the assertion that some make that polyamory is indeed a sexual orientation. Um, as you mentioned, many people will try polyamory, but then they have a failed experience or two and they say, okay, well, I'm not really willing to put up with this. I'm just going to go back to monogamy. Do you think that there is something about it being an orientation, like something that's really kind of more integral to a person that, that, persuades them to go through the experiences that you you went through and still decide that this is in fact the thing that thing for you yeah it's a, that's the that's the million dollar question and it's the sticky question as mm. well um you know unfortunately we just like don't really have any kind of hard empirical scientific data to determine like does this boil down to something innate does it boil down to something inherited does it boil down to a gene and it does beg the question for me of like, if we were looking for that, what would we even look for in the first place? Is it a gene that um, affects what your jealousy response is like? Right. Or is it a gene that affects, you know, kind of your emotional literacy or whatever, you know, it, like it starts to get a little bit fuzzy. Um, in my personal experience, you know, for me, it definitely felt like something you know, that resonated and kind of, you know, made sense once I learned about it, like all these domino pieces fell into place. And I was like, oh, that just makes sense that I felt this way. And I've run into a number of, you know, a large number of many, many other people who 
express something similar of like, this is how I felt my whole life. But then I've also met a lot of people where that's not necessarily the case, you know, where people are like, no, I just stumbled into this a year ago and it's great. And I don't know if I'm going to continue, but it's good for now. You know, Mm -hmm. I've also met a lot of people who've kind of feel like relationship chameleons where they're like pretty adaptable and feel like I could, you know, I've, I've been in many different types of relationships. I can kind of adapt to what makes sense for the relationship at the time. And then I've also met people who feel pretty staunch, hardcore, like I am monogamous and this is never going to happen for me, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And it it still remains a question mark, I think. Um, It still remains a big question mark. Um, I think that another part of that topic in general is that there's definitely kind of a school of thought out there. People will make the argument of like, well, human beings are not naturally monogamous, you know, naturally we are non-monogamous. There's definitely some schools of, you know, kind of the Evo psych school for sure that kind of make that case, um, which maybe is true. Maybe it isn't. I, I don't think it's necessarily quite relevant to like this day and age right now, whether we are naturally monogamous or not. The point is that we've adapted to a point where we are seem to be interested in a species in many different relating styles, mm-hmm. you know. I, I appreciate the materialist view there. Let's sort of <laughs> yeah. stick to the the facts here. Right, 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 right. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I like it's it's not a necessarily a great sign soundbite, but it's like that's just a big question mark. And I think it's going to take just a lot more time and maybe a lot more research um, to determine whether that's the case or not. So I guess we can kind of rest on right now. It's messy, and the argument is kind of more or less a semantic argument, if anything else, until there's some hard science. I think so. Yeah. Well, on the side of the skeptics, and there are many skeptics. The side of the people who are just monogamous, they've always been monogamous, um, through trials and tribulations, all of it, they just re- they always remain in this lane and kind of deny the legitimacy of, of any others. Uh, specifically referring to this podcast episode I listened to recently with some psychoanalysts who were discussing the matter. And one of them was really just going out and saying that they thought polyamory was an over-intellectualization of of romance, of of love, of emotion. It was very practical, and it was really a defense against intimacy, specifically long-term monogamous uh, intimacy that you experience when you're just with one partner in marriage, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily in the poly scene, but to me that almost sounds like fighting words. Like those are those are really attacking the kind of core. Um, what do you say to this to this kind of uh, criticism? Yeah, so I can see how on the one hand, we can look at it and it can sound like fighting words. On the other hand, for myself, having been in this scene so long and hearing every criticism under the sun, believe me, you know, um, it strikes me that that take just seems like a kind of just an uninformed take or an inexperienced take, you know, Mm -hmm. like hearing that, oh, it's a defense against intimacy, you know, hearing that just makes me think like, oh, you just don't know anyone who's actually polyamorous or, or you probably know them, but they're not out with you. You know, they're not out to you, things like that. Um, Because that sounds to me like kind of making an assumption that, uh, which is a common assumption to make because people see someone with multiple partners or someone who's dating multiple partners and they equate it to the closest thing that they know, which is one of two things. Either they equate it with cheating because again, that's kind of, you know, one of the predominant social models that we have for multi-partner relationships, uh, or they, they equate it to casual dating because that's kind of the other predominant social model that we have for dating multiple people. And 
everyone knows, or at least it's kind of held that everyone knows that if you're cheating, there's definitely some kind of intimacy issues going on in your life. And if you're casually dating a bunch of people at once, also probably some intimacy issues, because clearly you're not picking Mm -hmm. one person to commit to and become really intimate with. And the thing is that like polyamory and non-monogamy in practice doesn't necessarily look like either of those things, you know? Um, It's not cheating because it's based on people being honest and being forthright and kind of negotiating boundaries and negotiating these things ahead of time and keeping everything above the board. And it's not quite casual dating as well. Some people will certainly practice that way, but it's like, you know, the majority of people that I would say identify with a label of polyamorous practice a form of multi-partner relationship where we are building the whole point is that we're building emotionally intimate relationships with multiple people. Cause honestly, if you didn't want that, it could just be casual dating. You know, right. there isn't as much, there really isn't as much <clears throat> against casual dating as there is against non-monogamy and polyamory. And so if you truly don't want intimacy in your relationships, just go casually date, you know, people do it all the time and it works out just fine for the most part. Um, so, so that's kind of my impression of that is just seems like a not well-informed take, you know, and kind of making some assumptions that, the whole point of a multi-partner relationship is to avoid intimacy when in reality, a lot of people practice because they want that intimacy with more than one person. Um, And then, you know, I can kind of dial it back to my own lived experience where, you know, I have two long-term partners right now. You know, I've been with my partner, Alex, for four years, my partner, Jace, for seven years. And, to me anyway, this is my subjective experience, but they feel like very emotionally intimate relationships, you know, Mm -hmm. opened up to both of my partners about childhood trauma. I've been with both of them through really hard times. They've supported me through deaths, like Mm -hmm. on also the boring shit of like doing laundry together and getting into fights about the dishes and all these things. And so for me, I look at my own relationships and there isn't a part there where I feel like, oh, but I'm, holding back somewhere. Oh, but I'm holding back intimacy. Um, again, you know, I can't necessarily take my own experience and project it onto everyone, but I see a lot of that, you know, that the whole point Mm -hmm. of why people want to identify with polyamory and practice it is to get that emotional intimacy. I'm curious if, um, to try and give some context to the skeptical view as well, if, you know, because there are instances where people identify as polyamorous and then there are instances where people try polyamory and these, things can often end up looking quite different. In one model, it's somebody who's experienced, who has established polyamorous relationships, and they're kind of going about their lives. But trying polyamory, and especially if you're being open and talking about it a lot with your friends and peers and therapists and so forth, can be quite dramatic. People are bound to make mistakes. It's not exactly obvious being like growing up in a monogamous society. Uh, I imagine that kind of could bring a lot of bad attention Um, Or if you've only experienced monogamy and you see someone going through this, you think, wow, that looks terrible. And it sounds like you just don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. That's a harsh view. Um, But I can see how an uninformed person could just sort of like rest on their laurels and think, well, I have it right. You clearly don't. And, you know, I'll leave it at that. Hopefully through the good work of this podcast, we'll change that. (laughs) But, you know, one step at a time. I I mean, you know, you you mentioned the good work of this podcast. I mean, that was part of the reason why I started my own podcast Mm -hmm. and started my own writing is because of that. It's because of there is a need to generate awareness, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because it is that kind of weird, I guess we could chalk it up to a cognitive bias kind of thing that we can look at someone who's kind of stumbled out, out the gate 
trying their first non-monogamous relationship, made some mistakes, uh, had their heart broken, broke somebody else's heart, and we can easily look at it and say, like, oof, well, that's what you get for trying out something like non-monogamy. You probably shouldn't do that anymore. We don't say that to someone who just had their heart broken or is a survivor of, like, a marriage that turned abusive. You know, we don't say, oof, that's what you get for trying to be monogamous and commit to one person. You probably shouldn't try monogamy anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like monogamous relationships quote unquote fail I mean fail being also a subjective term but like fail and cause heartbreak every single day and yet we still hold a lot of faith in the institution and and we should you know I definitely wouldn't be anyone to make the case that like you know monogamy is inherently flawed or broken um but that is just kind of that funny thing that it's a lot easier to look at something like non-monogamy and pinpoint it to like oh well it must be the non-monogamy you know that must be why there's a problem um yeah, and, and it is this kind of interesting thing that, like, there is a fair amount of stigma, you know, and this is stigma that's not just anecdotal. This has been researched and studied um, that, you know, people who are in consensually non-monogamous relationships are much more likely to be perceived as irresponsible, as shady, as unhealthy, as, you know, all kinds of things. And the interesting and kind of upsetting thing that they found in researching this is that that stigma it kind of extends beyond just the realm of relationships. So what I mean by that is that in the study, they found that, you know, people are more likely to perceive someone in a non-monogamous relationship as not only being irresponsible, non-committal, things like that, but they're also more likely to perceive them as someone who is not likely to take their dog for regular walks. They're also likely to oh, perceive wow. that okay. person as someone who can't get their taxes done on time or someone who doesn't floss their teeth regularly. So now those are kind of silly examples because you think like, what does that have to do with anything? But it's like that stigma bleeds over into this idea of not only are you doing relationships incorrectly, you're kind of a bad person mm -hmm. and maybe a slovenly person. And that's mm -hmm. where things start dangerous. You know, that's where we start to get real world um, examples and precedents of people losing their jobs, of people having their kids taken away, you know, because the seed is that stigma that then um, applies kind of this moralistic label, not just to who you are and who you sleep with and how you practice relationships, but literally how moralistic and how good or bad you are as a person. This really gets to the heart of the next question I wanted to ask you. Uh, and in the way that we're talking about polyamory here, there's a suggestion that those who are polyamorous and those who are monogamous are categorically different, maybe even in binary terms. And maybe we're just, again, looking at something that's more of a semantic issue. I'm curious to hear your opinion. Is this a binary or are polyamory and monogamy two points on a spectrum of preferences? What is your take on that? Yeah, that, that is another tricky part of, you know, I kind of what we're seeing right now is that I think we are finding in many arenas in life right now that language is just not quite sufficient. And our language is not quite serving us with the level of like color and, and detail and nuance that we necessarily need for things like this. So that is tricky, you know, um, as far as kind of operating definitions for right now, I would say that like polyamory falls under the much bigger umbrella category of consensual non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. So as in practicing some kind of relationship format that's not exclusive, but that is consensually negotiated by everyone who's involved. And that's a huge umbrella. Um, as for the binary part of it, I don't, 
actually really think that it's a binary. I see it as maybe more of a spectrum and maybe even not even a spectrum, maybe more of a web, to be quite honest. Um, because you'll find a lot of people who identify as monogamous, but they still go to a swingers resort once a year and that's their vacation. And so is that strict monogamy? That kind of depends, you know, depends on who's defining it. There's people who are in monogamous relationships who feel like if my partner watches porn and I'm not present, that's a, a violation mm -hmm. of our relationship agreements and that's not okay. And so I think even within monogamy, there's this minutia and there's this nuance and there's this spectrum that we're also not really used to talking about. Um, and so, yeah. And so I do think that like there isn't necessarily this super hard and fast binary there. Interesting. I, I imagine that in dealing with um, polyamory, like your idea of a, uh, of a, uh, there's like a certain fidelity aspect to it. You know that the, the details, be those details probably become way more important than if you're in the kind of more niche community of of polyamory and understanding your relationship and having to sort that out. Since it is, in culture at least, largely undefined as compared to monogamy, it's still you know obviously there are tons of books on it and there's research on it is growing, but it's still new. And it is easy to be like, oh, yeah, I'm monogamous, uh, even though I've cheated, even though I watch porn, even though uh, I think about other potential partners, you know, go to right. the list, whatever. But then that also begs the question is that you can have two people who get into a relationship together and they decide, OK, we're going to have a monogamous relationship. And then five years later, when there's been some sort of violation, because we didn't even negotiate the terms of our monogamy, you know, I think that's another mm -hmm. really interesting thing that it's like we kind of uh, assume that we're all carrying the same definition of what monogamy even means when often we're not, mm -hmm. you know, like does monogamy include masturbation? Does monogamy include if we're out of town and do we get a hall pass, just hook up with whoever as long as we don't talk about it or bring anybody home? Is it still monogamy if we go together to a swingers club? Is it still mm -hmm. monogamy if we just have a threesome once a year, you know? Um, and that's something that in my work, I also try to encourage that even monogamous couples like hash out the terms of your monogamy, you know, talk about that because it is important and it is important to not just make assumptions that your partner is on the same page as you. I can't help but tie in the kind of secularization of, of society, at least Western society in the U.S. in particular. Um, I don't want to speak for the whole world, but obviously the marriage that you and I are talking about is one that comes from the church and less and less people go to church every year. That means the percentage of people who are getting married, even if they're having Christian weddings, are not necessarily kind of entrenched in the Christian ideology and teaching of marriage and what it means. So maybe it's too early to say, but I'm, I'm curious, if that trend continues, could polyamory someday become a new norm? I mean, do you see that as a possibility on the far, far horizon somewhere? Yeah, so also a little bit of a complex answer. As far as a norm is concerned, usually the question that I get is, um, is, is monogamy dead? Or is monogamy going to go extinct? You know, and so as far as like seeing polyamory and non-monogamy as a norm, I would say like, no, I don't think monogamy is ever going to go extinct in our lifetimes anyway, especially not marriage. You know, um, if you think about it, like marriage kind of is like the number one state sanctioned relationship with the number one state sanctioned benefits and tax cuts and stuff like that. And so at the very least, maybe this is um, 
a little bit too pragmatic of a view at the very least, as long as there continues to be so many benefits to getting married, I think that's going to be like the relationship choice du jour um, for a while. As far as becoming a norm, I would love to see it at least become something that's not quite so heavily stigmatized. And I would love, you know, part of the work that I do and the educational work that I do is I would just love for people to feel like they are equipped to make choices about the relationships that they want to be in, that we're not feeling just kind of dumped into this default setting of monogamy, um, of, you know, usually heteronormative monogamy without, you know, any ability to examine that or analyze that or determine whether or not that's the right choice for us. Like, I would love it to become enough of a norm that people feel at least there's a choice. Even if Mm -hmm. their choice is monogamy, they're at least aware that there's a choice there. Um, Now, that being said... I literally found out today that there was a study, I think, done in October of last year, um, a sample size of about 3,000 people, 80% of their sample size has fantasized about being in some kind of consensually non-monogamous relationship, um, compared to 50%, which has, you know, 50% of their sample size had fantasized about non-consensual non-monogamy or fantasized about cheating, essentially. Um, And so that, to me is really interesting that it's like, okay, there's maybe something going on here where there is some kind of urge or some kind of, I think there's like a much bigger percentage of the population than lets on that would be interested in some kind of non-traditional relationship format. And that maybe if it were more of a norm, if there was less stigma, maybe we would start to see more of it publicly. Mm. And I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a social scientist here, but it's pretty clear to say that the thing, the, 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 the biggest thing which prohibits that kind of behavior is is losing power being the church, I think, traditionally. Of course, in culture, these things are very deeply steeped, but if that's the primary force which stops this kind of behavior and moralizes this behavior, if that's slowly going away, well then, you know, what's what's standing in the way of that behavior? If it's clearly on the minds of, of well, you know, as you said, 80%, roughly speaking, of people. Yeah, definitely. And of course, that's to say we can't extrapolate and say that like, just because 80% of people fantasize about it doesn't mean they're going to act on their mm-hmm. fantasies. You know, exactly. I think there's, there's a lot of fantasies that we can have that we don't necessarily want to have in real life. But, but it does definitely belie this fact that like, this is something that people are interested in, and enough people are interested in it enough to go through with it, and pursue it, even with the stigma around, right. you know, um, at least the statistics that stand right now, or at least the most recent statistics for the states anyway, um, is that approximately, uh, what is it, between three and 5% is, um, is estimated to be the percentage of the population that is currently in some form of consensually non-monogamous relationship. Um, and three to 5% sounds small, but to compare it, like 4% of the population identifies as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow. And, okay. uh, yeah, even less of a percent of the population identifies as vegan. Um, so that just kind of helps to put things in perspective mm-hmm. there. And then the other interesting statistic is the fact that like one in five people, so 20% of people have indicated that they have tried some form of non-monogamous relationship. Um, and these are pretty hefty chunks, mm-hmm. you know, like clearly mm-hmm. considerable chunks where it's no longer just about a fringe or just about a fetish or just about something these weirdos do over here, but something that's like, you know, a legitimate choice for a decent chunk of the population. There's a lot of people who are going to try this and make mistakes, specifically young people. And I know this is a huge question 
he wrote a whole book about this. Um, well, not just about this, but largely about this. And that is in soundbite form, small things. What are some, just one or two key pieces of beginner advice, like really baby step stuff, the first things that you can think of. Okay, let me think. Soundbitey things. Soundbitey things. Because, um, yeah, there's like a billion things. Um, first piece of advice by the book. <laughs> by the book, listen to the podcast. Um, oh my God. Okay, I kind of start getting the ball rolling this way. There's two pieces of advice that I find myself repeating the most with my clients. Like if I was going to boil down to everything, like everything that I work with, with my clients, if I was going to really condense it down and simplify it into um, something short and sound bitey, that would be number one, have boundaries. And then number two, wear a condom. Because honestly, like what I find working with clients, it's like if you don't have boundaries or you don't enforce your boundaries and you don't wear a condom, that's how people get in the most trouble. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, that's how people get into the most trouble. Now, again, hypersimplification, of course, everyone has different situations and different needs. But I find that that's like, a, like I said, that's where people tend to get into the most trouble. Um, and I think that what I would supplement that with would be something like two other pieces of advice which would be be honest be honest with yourself be honest with the people around you be honest with the people that you love even if it's embarrassing and un uncomfortable um and it's okay to not be in a relationship that's not working for you it's okay to break up you know i do think that our cultural messaging tends to shame people for leaving relationships or for breaking up and i think we get more cultural messaging telling us to, to like stick it out even if we're miserable in a relationship more so than it tells us that it's okay to leave and so i really like reinforcing like it is okay to leave um that's kind of just like some general relationship advice that's not even necessarily non-monogamy specific but uh well but i i think where i see it come up is that sometimes part of that initial stumbling out of the gate and sometimes that initial like making mistakes on the first try uh the first go around is because people are in a monogamous relationship that has a lot of issues maybe it's run its course maybe they're they're you know not super thrilled about being with their partner anymore but non-monogamy presents kind of this like low stakes way to maybe explore other people without having to have the breakup conversation mm -hmm. um that's where I see a lot of people also get into some trouble is that it's like, really, you should just leave your monogamous relationship and kind of start fresh, start dating, you know, with the intention of being non-monogamous, if that's something that really resonates with you rather than kind of trying to hold on to both. Um, yeah. Is that, was that enough? Was that? <laughs> that's really great. And in my own experience, as well as what I hear from uh, therapist colleagues of mine, these seem to be the very most common mistakes that are made, especially by couples and individuals trying it out for the first time. Uh, the next big hurdle is jealousy. I mean, monogamous relationships are often organized around avoiding jealousy. And in some cases, feeling jealousy might even be interpreted as justification to eliminate a person or behavior from a relationship entirely. But polyamory really encourages a radically different reading of jealousy. Can you, can you speak about that and what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. Um, so first thing I want to address is that I actually, um, after a decade of this, I actually don't think that we're served by making the assumption that jealousy is unavoidable in any circumstance. Um, but that's just something I'm just going to put a pin in that for now. Um, the second part being that, yeah, it is really interesting that, like you said, especially with romantic or sexual jealousy, that it is kind of this um, benchmark for letting us know how pissed off we can get 
with our partner, you know, and how much righteous anger we can have access to. And I don't know if that necessarily applies to other situations in our life where we feel jealousy, because that's something that's often missing from the conversation is the fact that like we experience jealousy in many, many different situations, not just in romantic relationships. You know, we experience jealousy if a coworker uh, gets a promotion that we thought that we were the ones in line for. We can experience jealousy of our siblings, you know, for getting parents' love, attention, money, things like that. We can be jealous of our friend if they get something that we were really hoping to get. You know, we experience jealousy in many, many different contexts. And yet I feel like in those contexts of like your friends, your family members, your coworkers, we're not necessarily given that same carte blanche to be angry at them. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, when it when it comes to pro- things like professional jealousy, I feel like the predominant advice that I see are things like, you know, we'll use that jealousy to motivate you to, mm-hmm. to make yourself better or to go after your goals or pursue your dreams or pursue the skill that you want or let that jealousy motivate you to take stock of, you know, what is it that you may be lacking or maybe need development on, at least in a professional setting. Um, or, you know, the advice that I see is like, instead of being jealous for your friend or your sibling, like maybe try to think about the things that you do have and that you are grateful for and things like that. And so it's like, we have these socially acceptable coping mechanisms for jealousy. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to romantic and sexual jealousy, they all go out the window. Mm-hmm. And the coping mechanism is just avoid it at all costs, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's something that I, I found interesting for a long time that it's, it's like, we kind of, um, when it comes to romantic jealousy, it's just the, the approach of like, just bury your head in the sand and just avoid it if you can, instead of talking about like what might be deeper here and how might we actually use it to be a good thing. Um, so there's that, you know, jealousy is another one of those big questions that gets asked all the time. Um, I will say that now, you know, after working with so many clients and having my own personal experiences, jealousy, there's a huge palette to what jealousy actually is. You know, jealousy can bring up feelings of abandonment, rejection. Jealousy can come from a place of feeling like we're missing out. Jealousy can come with anger about something that we're not getting that we wish that we had, or it can bring up like sadness, actually, like a deep sadness or a deep longing for something. Like there's so much, there's this huge palette of emotions that can be underneath jealousy. And I think that jealousy is just a really, really good tool. It's like a signpost that helps point the way to something really important. Um, you know, it can help point the way to, it could be something like, oh, I realize that I'm kind of lacking in my relationship that maybe like I want more communication for my partner, or I want a particular type of sex from my partner, or I want to feel a particular type of intimacy with my partner or jealousy can point the way to, oh yeah, this is a deep seated insecurity that I've held for years that I've never dealt with, that I've carried with me all this time. And now it's bringing it out into the light and that really sucks and that's really uncomfortable, but it's in the light now. Mm you know, and that equips me to be able to talk about it with my partner or my friend or my therapist or, or whatever, you know? And so, so I think there's that aspect that it's kind of like, instead of treating jealousy, like it's this like nuclear sludge that you cannot get on you at all costs. It's, you know, it it falls more into the whole spectrum of all human emotions, you know, Mm -hmm. because, 
no one asks me, everyone asks me like, don't you get jealous? How do you deal with jealousy? No one asks me, don't you get angry? Don't you get sad? Don't you get lonely? And of course I experience all those things in relationship. We all do, you know, and we find our ways to work with those emotions either in healthy, productive ways or in unhealthy, unproductive ways. Um, the question sometimes kind of the supplementary question that gets attached to this that I, that I want to address, you know, is like a lot of people kind of then say like, Oh God, but if I opened up my monogamous relationship right now, I'd be so jealous. Like I couldn't deal with it. Like, how can you deal with that? And I do think that something that often is missing from the dominant media narrative is the fact that opening up a relationship that was previously monogamous versus the experience of being in a relationship that's been nominal, like consensually non-monogamous from the beginning, there's some overlap there, but that also provides very different challenges, especially when it comes to jealousy and the emotions that come up. You know, I, I think that it's a much bigger adjustment and it's a little bit more emotionally shocking to open up a relationship and work through that versus to kind of start a relationship from the beginning that is non-monogamous. And that's, you know, that's maybe a subject for like another time or another podcast or something like that. Um, but often what happens is I think that people kind of project, they just immediately think of their monogamous relationship and think about how hard that would be to see their partner go and date someone. And it's like, fuck, yeah, that's hard. Right. <laughs> you know, that's really fucking hard, you know. And people work through it in various ways, but it's also not necessarily the same starting point that everyone's starting from. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. Um, it, it just seems, I understand that the, 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 the draw to doing doing something with somebody you're doing it with your partner who you know but you also know that person emotionally they're established as somebody who is only with you watching that change I, I can imagine would feel a bit like betrayal um like intellectually it's one thing but then emotionally it's a much different sort of beast to take on yeah and that's why i have a job at all <laughs> Do you hear that, everybody out there? Keep opening up that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true though, because it's like that—that that is definitely something that, like, it really helps if you're opening up a relationship that's previously been monogamous. Get help with that shit. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have a lot of cult cultural scripts handed down to us for how this is supposed to go. You mm -hmm. know, and I can't guarantee you that if you go get help with a counselor or a therapist or a coach or whatever, I can't guarantee that it's going to go well, that it's going to go perfectly, but you know, just get some help. You know, it, it's, it's really going to make things go so much better if you're getting help even before you start the process of opening up your relationship. I see a lot of attempts at this of, of, uh, you know, friends and, co and colleagues, peers of mine who think, you know, I'm, I'm forward-thinking, uh, liberal artist, so forth. I can totally handle this. Um, I'm very open-minded. Um, we totally got this. And then they totally don't got it. Um, and <laughs> I think there's just a sort of a lack of an understanding of how difficult it actually is. Mm -hmm. um, and from what I've seen in, in leading up to doing this episode, even is, is just how much vocabulary there is out there in the poly world to help you understand a lot of feelings and concepts that there really isn't much language for otherwise. Um, yeah, definitely. That these are kind of unique experiences that are typically, you know, typically in culture, it's relationships are kind of engineered to avoid certain feelings of jealousy and betrayal. I mean, these are not the best words to describe them, all of them, but, um, we typically avoid these at all costs, and, and despite how um, aware of that we might think we are, until one experiences it, I imagine that 
the depths of peril <laughs> just seem kind of abstract or don't don't pertain to you and then suddenly there you are finding yourself in it yeah and and that actually leads me to i guess another you know notable quotable sound biteable little piece of advice that i like to give people who are opening up for the first time or tackling this for the first time and that's uh you're going to be surprised and you're going to be caught off guard, not always in a bad way, but also not always in a good way. You know, I think that's something that comes up a lot with jealousy is that especially if you've not experienced this before, if this is new to you and you're just setting off that often people kind of have a preconceived notion of what's going to set them off and what's going to be okay, you know, and they'll come in being like, okay, well, I know that like, if my partner is just having these, these, you know, kind of shallow physical only, you know, hookup relationships, as long as they don't fall in love with somebody, you know, I know that then I'm going to be okay. Cause I think if my partner fell in love with someone that would just be too much. I couldn't handle that. And if they can just have sex, like, I know I totally got that. That's fine. Um, and then a lot of people find in practice that sometimes it's the opposite, you know, that they're actually, way less um, terrified by their partner developing an intimate relationship with someone else and then will suddenly find, oh my God, but then my partner having a one night stand just felt like a, a sucker punch to mm. the gut. Um, I know that's something in even my own life, I think that's something I've learned to accept is that it's like things like jealousy or anger or sadness or just these unexpected things that they, they will surprise you. You know, often for me, the things that I think are going to be the scariest aren't actually that scary in reality. And sometimes the things that I think like, yeah, totally sure I got this, like suddenly, you know, I get, uh, t what's the word? What's the word? Uh, blindsided, blindsided by, um, you know, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay as long as you feel like you're doing the work and you have the tools with you to be able to kind of handle the adventure if you feel equipped, you know. You just listened to a conversation with Dedeker Winston, relationship coach, host of the Multi-Armory podcast, and author of The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory, available wherever books are sold, as well as on Audible. I want to make a note that the church isn't the only establishment which influences the way people form relationships. Plenty of other religions out there have opinions about this as well. Many of them also prefer monogamy. Up next, I'd like to share with you a conversation with Berlin-based psychotherapist Matthias Funken, who works with polyamorous clients in his practice and is himself practicing polyamory and has been for some time. As Dedeker pointed out in the last interview, there are a lot of poly people out there in the world. As she put it, there are more people who identify as polyamorous than vegan. And if you think it's tough to find a good vegan restaurant, just try finding a therapist if you're polyamorous. Finding a good therapist who is not only sympathetic, but also understanding and knowledgeable about polyamory can be a real challenge, even in a city as big and progressive as Berlin. Over time I realized, because I'm, uh, how, do, how do I say that? So, um, because I live in ethical non-monogamous relationships, over time I realized talking to people that there seems to be a serious lack of therapists in that area and this it's not something you can really talk about with many people can't really talk about with the therapist so um, I figured I should that put that on my profile and yeah people started coming to me when they 
wanted to talk about these things. Couples came, individuals came. I'm curious about that leap, being somebody who was living within polyamorous relationships yourself and noticing that there was sort of a lack a lack of therapists working specifically with that group of people. Was that sort of a, a, a risk that you had to take? It felt kind of risky to just put it out there, you know, because nobody else at the time I didn't, I did some research and I didn't find anybody in Berlin who, who had this on, on their profile and it felt like a little coming out in a way. Um, but I mean, I wasn't really nervous about having to work in a different way with these people. It's just about um, same as I wouldn't work in a different way with a with a queer person. It's just that uh, they feel safe talking to me and they feel like they won't be judged and I don't really use another approach with them. Interesting. I think that's would maybe be surprising to a number of people, maybe who, especially people who aren't really familiar with polyamory, that in terms of your practice, it doesn't actually require much change, that there are kind of some core values and principles and practices in place that remain consistent regardless of who you're working with. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, what changes if you live that way is that you might be more challenged in your life and you might be confronted with uh, more of your insecurities and jealousies and fears. So more things might come up. So in that way, I think of it, of living like this as, as a, in a way as an amplifier for your therapeutic process, because it just makes it kind of impossible to avoid certain things. And this is my personal experience in my life as well as my therapeutic experience that this really tends to confront people with their with the stuff that they need to work on much more than you know being in a cozy long term monogamous relationship would. I really like this term that you just used uh, that polyamory can be an amplifier for for what exactly for people to view themselves and what are they being confronted with to to become themselves maybe um they're confronted with yeah stuff that needs to be dealt with i would i would say um like your specific insecurities your specific fears um something that's not necessarily confronted in monogamous relationships where we have where we might feel secure that our partner won't leave us because we have this arrangement. But what if he or she actually meets another person? Won't that be scary? And why would that be scary? Will I be scared that somebody else is better than me, you know, sexually, as a person, whatever, in whatever way? This confronts me with my insecurities. Considering that this has really been a specialty and focus for you, and you've opened up your practice to do this, I imagine that you would see a number of different kind of scenarios of people of all levels of experience. But what are some of the biggest consistent trends that you see of the people who come to seek out your practice? Well, one thing I do see is that people don't feel accepted by other therapists if they try to talk to them about living ethical non-monogamy, because um, there's different ways in which um, therapists respond, like some of them don't take it seriously and tell them, oh, it's just a phase you're going through. And some of them pathologize it and say, you know, you're afraid of commitment and we should work on that. And that's deeply problematic. And some of them even 
just dismiss it and say, you know, this doesn't work. We tried it in the 60s and uh, it doesn't work. Yeah, I wondered if there was a term like um, mononormativity and it actually exists because I thought I'd made it up, but no, it exists. Mononormativity is the assumption that um, romantic and sexual relationships can only be monogamous and um, this I think should be challenged this assumption as well as heteronormativity needs to be challenged I think mononormativity needs to be challenged too. Interestingly in the case of polyamory as you were sort of pointing out that you do have the right to feel jealousy and insecurity it's not like you're better than those if you're just experiencing polyamory for the first time you don't you suddenly rise above it. Oh absolutely. But what's interesting is that in traditionally in, in monogamy, we think about those things as a kind of, those are a fuel for the fire. You feel those things, you can blame it on somebody that made you feel them. But it sounds like what you're saying is that isn't really the case, that you're allowed to feel them, but they don't mean the same thing. Is that true? Yeah, it's about owning them, and it's about dealing with them and being curious about your inner experience. You know, what does that tell me? I'm, I tend to not to be very jealous, but when I'm jealous, I try to be curious about it and I try to ask myself, oh, that's interesting. What what does that want to tell me? Mm. So I imagine it takes a very kind of a lot of courage and an inquisitive nature and the willingness to kind of go through that as opposed to kind of just this feels bad. I'm going to put it away and yeah. I'm going to do what I need to put it away. Yeah. yeah. And anybody who's familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy will recognize that this is one of the principles of ACT um, to be curious and open to your inner experience. So another example of um, polyamory as a potential amplifier for the therapeutic process. I still work mostly with an ACT background, trying to look at the inner experience, the thoughts and feelings, trying to look into ways of dealing with them in a different way and also focusing on personal values like what do I want in relationships what kind of person do I want to be in my relationships and then try to aim for a life that's guided by those values and not guided by fears or insecurities. You've been listening to the It's Complicated podcast. You've probably heard the rumors, and let me be the one to say right here on the show, they're all true. It's Complicated is in fact much more than just a podcast. We are first and foremost a web directory on a mission to help you find the right therapist who speaks your language. No matter what kind of therapy you're looking for, It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect with a practitioner. Just visit us online at complicated.life. And if you like the content that you get here on the podcast, you can find more insightful information on our blog at blog.complicated.life. Not only will you find a vast plethora of useful and interesting articles, but you'll also find the transcripts of this episode as well as links to learn more about Dedeker and Matthias. This is It's Complicated. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.